the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I can't believe it's nearly the end of July. It's been such a strange year without any of the usual big shows and events as markers in our diaries. But I have been on a camper van holiday this week, which is an excellent consolation prize if you can't go to Tokyo, as it turns out. This week on the podcast, our guest is Spencer Wilton, the British dressage rider who made his Olympic debut in Rio. He'll be sharing his experiences of selection for the Games four years ago and of riding there in Brazil. The phone rang and I thought, oh God, this is it, this is it. It was just the most magical experience when you're actually told that you've been selected. We've also got a whole host of news for you on this episode. We're talking about blood rules, beach riding, lorry breakdowns and more. And finally, vet Ricky Farr, Farr and Percy Equine, will be talking about the vital importance of tetanus vaccinations and why this condition is so serious. When you say tetanus to people, they always think, okay, never seen a case, so why do I have to vaccinate against it? It's just one of those things that owners almost neglect, sadly, for the sake of 20 or 30 quid. So that's enough chat from me. Tighten your girths and let's get started. Hello and welcome to this week's guest interview. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound. I'm joined today by British Olympic medalist Spencer Wilton. Spencer's a familiar name in British dressage, having won many national titles over the years. And he made his senior championship debut at the Rio Olympics in 2016, where he was part of the British team who brought home a silver medal. Hello, welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Hi, Polly. Thank you very much. So, of course, if it wasn't for the pandemic, we would be a few days into the Tokyo Olympics by now. In fact, I think the dressage would have actually been completed and we'll know who would have won the medals. I know that you were campaigning for team selection with Supernova, a.k.a. Neville, who is your Rio horse. It must have been a great shame that the Olympics were postponed for you. It was a massive shame. And that's actually a real shock that you've just told me because I've lost track of time that uh, it would have actually been done and dusted by now, which is a, a slightly scary thought. But yes, it was a it was a real blow because uh, of his age this year. And I had in my mind that we were going to probably retire him at the end of this year. But having sort of consulted with the, the, the powers that be and the vets that look after him, um, they all were of the opinion that basically I would, if I gave him this year as a quiet year and, and, and didn't really have him in, full competition training and, and fitness and just kept him ticking over that uh, his brain would be perfectly capable of coming back and maybe going for a, a, a slot at next year's championship, wherever it may be. And so so that made me feel quite a bit better because it was, I, I have to say, I was quite disheartened by the whole thing initially. But after of a couple course. of weeks, I thought, well, let's just go again for next year. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a a good attitude because, of course, Neville will be 18 next year. So like you said, he'll need some careful management. But I know he doesn't act his age, does he? Definitely not. And I and I said to when I spoke to um, Andy Bath, who looks after him up at Newmarket, and uh, he said, you know, we'll we'll just pop the old boy on ice for six months um, (laughs) and (laughs) keep him ticking over. And then we'll 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 thaw him out and get him going again in the autumn. And I said to him, well, I, if you take care of his body, I'll take care of his brain, which, as you say, is still a, that of a sort of five or six year old most of the time. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that's the plan. And I, I've got nothing to lose by doing it. And he feels he's having a great time hacking out and 
uh, having a play around in the school every now and again. And yeah, he feels fantastic. And I think if, if he hadn't have come back at the beginning of this year, feeling as good as he did, then I would be slightly more apprehensive about it. But he actually came back this year at 17, feeling better than he's ever felt. And I think that was one of my big disappointments is that uh, he got some good scores in uh, Leah mm. in February and then Kiso in March. And I really felt that with a little bit of tidying up of things and a few less little mistakes in the test that we had a really good test around the corner. So I was that was one of the things that I was really gutted about because yeah. I've always felt that there's a really, really lovely test in him somewhere. And I've just never really quite been able to get it as I want it. Um, so, but I really felt like I was on track to do that this year. So hopefully I'll be able to replicate the same thing next year. Oh, fingers crossed. Uh, let's just dial it back four years to Rio and talk a little bit about your experience at the Rio Olympics. That was your very first championship, actually, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And a big one. <laughs> uh, quite a big one to start your championship <laughs> career. <laughs> so just talk me through some of your highlights from, from Rio, some of your favourite memories from that time. Oh, gosh, there's so many. But I mean, the selection process building up to that point uh, was fairly stressful. Uh, I can remember exactly where I was when I got the call from Dickie Wager to say that I had been selected. So obviously that was a huge highlight. And then of from course. that point... Where, where were you? <laughs> well, I, I was on hands-free, but I was, <laughs> I, was on my, I was on my way to the yard and I was literally just getting onto the M4. And, uh, and and the phone rang and I thought, oh God, this is it, this is it. Um, and I was trying to negotiate roadworks and getting, as I said, onto the M4 whilst Dickie was talking to me. So it was an amazing moment. But the, the sad thing is because of appeal periods and all the rest of it, I had to sort of keep my lips mm. uh, tightly sealed for a few days before I could actually really get really excited and tell everybody. And then to be honest, from that point onwards, it was just the most kind of sounds a bit soppy, but the most magical kind of experience when you're actually told that you've been selected is always quite close to uh, the actual sort of leaving date. Yes, so there of was course. A, there's an awful lot to do. Uh, there's so much that's done kind of prior to that back in January with paperwork and admin stuff. But um, but actually, um, you know, you don't have that many weeks to get organized. So it was a bit of a roller coaster. Um, the kitting out day was um, amazing. And everybody said that it would be, and it was fantastic. And I mean, the whole experience, I have to say, was I, I look back on it, and if I never get the opportunity to do it again, it will be one of the most amazing experiences of my life. You were obviously on a team with Carl Hester, Charlotte Dujardin, and Fiona Bigwood. It must have been a really fun experience to have those people around you, and of course, the wider support team as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say, I mean, having never been to any of those big championships before, I don't know quite what I was expecting, but I just had the best time. We had so much fun and it was such a great team to be a part of. Everybody's obviously got their kind of individual pressures in a team situation, but we had just the best time and, and the people around us, the team behind us uh, through the BEF, uh, we had an, an amazing support team and backup team. Dickie Waygood uh, made, uh, as Chef to Keep, made the whole uh, experience probably, uh, well, as much fun as you can have at an Olympic Games when you're <laughs> needed to be serious and represent your country. Um, but yeah, and, and, and actually, you know, I hadn't quite appreciated that when we when you got into the village, we, we all shared an apartment. And that must have been an experience. 
It was, but do you know, it, I hadn't even kind of twigged what, what was going to happen, but we're literally, you know, not stuck together, but basically uh, together the whole time, 24-7 for the best part of two weeks. Uh, and we just had, in between being very serious uh, and, and needing to try and win a medal, um, had the best time and so many laughs and so many great times and, and fabulous memories. A lot of people say that at an Olympics, they become really fascinated by seeing all the other top athletes from all the different sports and trying to guess who who does which sports. Was that something that you found? Oh, God, we spent uh, end, hours doing it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, the food hall in, in Rio, I think, I mean, it was like a huge sort of aircraft hangar size building. And I think it sat about 5,000 people at one time. Um, trying to kind of work out what people did. And, you know, obviously there's people from all around the world, from different cultures, and what people had on their food trays was fascinating. I can <laughs> Espe- imagine. Especially at breakfast time. <laughs> uh, so it was amazing. It was, it was, we had great fun. We had great fun. Did you meet anyone that you became a little bit starstruck by? I think the first time I saw Usain Bolt was quite a moment because uh, he just obviously he's physically quite an imposing person but he just had this uh, kind of amazing aura about him and uh, that was definitely quite a moment I would say. Yeah absolutely I can imagine. So just skipping forward to the present day uh, back to corona times I know that you've been pretty busy lately I know you you and your husband fellow dresser rider Darren Hicks have recently moved to a lovely new yard. We have. It, it's sort of been on the cards for a while and we were umming and ahhing about the whole uh, move because it would it, it has meant selling our house just outside Newbury, which we were, well, we both are very kind of in love with. Um, but as a very good friend of mine said to me, you know, you can't be sentimental when your career and business is involved. So it's going to be a real wrench. And I've been, well, when you mentioned earlier about the fact that we should have been in Tokyo right now, and I've suddenly thought about the the drama and the work and the time that it takes to actually not just move yards, but to try and sell a house and find of somewhere course. else to go. And I actually don't know how I would have been able to do it. So that's the only slight silver lining to the whole Corona situation is yeah. that I've had time to do it. <laughs> the yard is amazing. The horses have all settled in. Darren has had his horses not at the yard that I was at. So we've been kind of running two different businesses for the last however many years. So it'd just be really lovely that we're able to be uh, on the same property in different yards, I might add, which might be be the saviour of the relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because, you know, he's run his yard and his horses in his way. And it's fantastic at the new place because he's got his own yard, which is completely self-contained. I've got mine, but yet we can meet up in the arenas and uh, be supportive to each other and help each other out, which is which is really what we were both looking for. That sounds like the, the perfect setup, actually. So obviously, we've talked a little bit about Neville, your top horse. What other horses do you have at the moment? You've got a couple of younger ones. Yeah, I've got a lovely um, eight-year-old mare that is, uh, she's had, a, obviously, because of what's been going on, had a bit of a quiet time uh, as far as competing is concerned. And we did some embryo transfers with her last year and she's had two foals this year from last year's um embryo transfers are two glamadale foals they were due a month apart from each other and one was two weeks early and one was two weeks late and they were both born on the same day three hours apart from each other on april oh my the first 
Wow. <laughs> I know, which is amazing. And I, I got the I got the message from the, the lady that's that's dealing with it and looking after them at about nine o'clock at night saying that we'd had a lovely cult and I was you know, messaged the owners to say what had happened and all the rest of it and then turned my phone off and then the next morning I turned my phone on. They'd said, Oh, and a filly. And I, th- I honestly thought it was an April Fool's and I sort of had to do a double <laughs> a double take. But yeah, we've got a Colt and a filly. But she's great and she's, um, you know, she's a little bit behind on her training because of, well, not training, but competing. But I'm just going to sit tight and um, hopefully get her out and about probably not next year now, I would say. Um, and then I've got some younger ones, uh, a, a lovely five-year-old, also by Glamadel actually, that I bred um, and I think has a really great future. And... There's a, yeah, so I, I definitely have a little bit of a gap after Neville, uh, right. but I'm trying to fill it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the easiest thing to do, but yes. His are very big hoof prints to, uh, to follow as well, aren't they? They are definitely, they are definitely. Whatever happens in my future, he, he definitely will have been the horse of my lifetime so far. So do you think that you might be getting out to some shows later this year? How have you found not competing? Have you missed it? I have. I mean, I, I love competing and I, I really, really enjoy the pressure of it and the build up and all the rest of it. But it's been fairly well documented over the years that Supernova has had injuries and time off and there's been disappointment. So I'm relatively well trained at being able to kind of switch myself off from my competing desire. <laughs> so so in a way, this is yeah, it's frustrating. Uh, and, and obviously the Olympics was a was a big blow, but actually I would say I've yeah definitely well trained in the art of switching off and 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 focusing on the future. I think that's really really important. Thank you so much Spencer for joining us on the Horse and Hab podcast today. Best of luck for the rest of this year and of course your team selection campaign for Tokyo in 2021. Thank you very much Polly. Thank you. So we have a full complement of the Horse and Hound news team here today. Our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. Hello. Our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hello, Lucy. Hiya. And our news writer, Becky Murray. Hello, Becky. Hello. So what's everyone been up to this week? Lucy, have you been riding? Yes, I've been riding a bit. I met up with a friend for um, for a hack, which I haven't done in ages. And it sounds like the most not the most exciting thing to do, but it's really nice to have things like that to look forward to again. And uh, she was riding and leading. And so we met up sort of halfway around my usual hack. And I think my lovely mare thought she was going hunting, <laughs> which was all quite exciting to start with but they all settled down I think to be honest I think she was feeling how I was feeling just quite pleased to be out and sort of hanging out with her friends again really. Riding and leading sounds like the perfect social distancing tool you can just keep the lead horse between the two of you. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah that sounds perfect. I was trying an exercise this week with my horse that I learned when I went to Pippa Funnels earlier this year and she she was doing this exercise with the riders she was training where they were jumping on a 20 metre circle and they had four fences around it but I decided to alter the exercise so there were only two fences because I'm not Pippa Funnel nor the calibre of any of the riders she was training so I was uh, just jumping two fences on a 20 metre circle but, uh, but it was quite good I was uh, it worked out well and I found it quite useful so that was handy what about you Becky have you had any more lame Shetlands or anything in Scotland no Shetland pony antics I'm pleased to report um my Connemara mare Chloe had a two-week holiday so we're just kind of getting back to business now excellent um and Eleanor what about you I know you were out jumping the uh, the week before and uh, have your girls had a quieter week 
Yeah, much quieter. Um, and then I had a bit of a near-death experience at the weekend when my big mare saw some tree stumps that had appeared and um, was very lucky to get away with her life because obviously they were just about to attack. Um, but yeah, <laughs> managed to stay on board, which is always a bonus. Yeah, I mean, tree stumps are definitely a big threat to horses, so it's always best to look out for them. Cool. So we should get started talking about the news. And Becky, I'm going to come to you first this week, because I think the story you've been looking at is really interesting. You have been writing about the FEI blood rules, and they're in the spotlight again at the moment after a tribunal decision. Can you give us a bit of a summary of, uh, of what's been going on and why this has come to the fore now? Of course. Um, the Irish Olympic show jumper, Billy Toomey, um, he won a Grand Prix in Wellington in March on the May. Lady Lou. Billy had been last going the jump off and on leaving the arena he went to the boot and bandage control check which that check is conducted by a steward. Now unfortunately a small amount of blood was found on Lady Lou's flank and he was eliminated by the FEI ground jury on the basis of veterinary reasons. In the regulations it states these ground jury decisions are considered final and binding. Um, Billy did appeal the decision through the FEI tribunal and provided video evidence which showed no marks on his mare when finishing the jump off. But the appeal has been rejected on the basis that the appeal was against the ground jury's decision and was not admissible. And it's quite clear that everyone wants the best for horse welfare out of this rule. And, and Billy was at pains to stress that his mare, as he put it, was always in fine health. And he said he supports the principle of the rule. But what he's questioning is whether it's actually fit for purpose and the way it's implemented at shows. One of the things that we've been chatting to and fro about as you've been examining this story is the questions about when and where horses are examined for blood, because Billy argued that on this occasion, Lady Lou was injured bumping herself, leaving the arena, not during the round. And those questions have sort of been at the forefront of your discussions this week, haven't they, Becky? Tell us a little more about that. Yes. So when Billy left the arena, he said there was a lot of people there in terms of fans and spectators and well-wishers congratulating him. And he said that's when the injury occurred. And I think this case has certainly highlighted a few different points, being that the injury occurred after the jumping round. But despite this, it is still an in-play decision. Now, there is a definition of competition in the sort of general regulations but interestingly not in the jumping regulations the tribunal stated the definition of competition isn't actually very helpful at determining at what point in time a competition is over so i put the fei does there need to be a definition of competition in the jumping regulations or perhaps a better definition in the general regulations and they have said they'll need to assess this so it will be interesting if we do see any amendment in the future there are also questions about the safety of the route where the horse leaves the arena, but you say the FEI said that, that the pathway at this particular show was considered safe. That's right. Um, it is monitored by stewards, but they were, you know, it is supposed to be safe. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I often it shows riders sort of ride out through an archway, which obviously makes the entrance gate look great, but sometimes horses can be a bit spooked or whatever in that in that narrow area. And there are also some more general questions here about use of spurs. Billy said, unless spurs are to be outlawed, the outcome of their use has to be addressed in a more considered manner. For me personally, the crux of this issue, whenever we talk about it, is whether there should be a blanket rule that says that combinations are out, they're eliminated if blood is found on the flank, or should there be more discretion? And I think it's such a tricky one. I think that 
personally, I've always tried to think about it from an official's point of view. And I've always thought that it would be, they would always actually be in a more difficult position if they could use judgment. And then riders would sort of be able to argue and say it's not that serious. Whereas the official might be saying, no, it is quite serious. Whereas at least if it's a hard and fast rule, that is the rule and that the official, you know, has to assess whether there is blood. But if there's blood, the rider is out. But I know that the International Jumping Riders Club does support there being different sanctions in different cases. That's right. Um, they are calling for officials to be allowed to use discretion when dealing with these cases. They feel there should be different sanctions for different scenarios, be it, I guess, whether it was an accident or whether you're dealing with a minor violation or indeed a major one. And perhaps if it was the rider's first offence. Really interesting there, that idea about whether the the sanctions sort of meet the offence. And uh, there have been changes to the blood rules and to the salary and tax rules across the disciplines in the past few years. And is that something the FEI are continuing to look at? Absolutely. And um, the FEI told me they are continuously assessing and updating the rules on tax and salary to ensure they are fit for purpose. An example of this being from the 1st of January this year, spurs with discs that have serrated edges are no longer allowed in competition. But you can still ride in uh, in spurs with discs with smooth edges, that's right, isn't it? That's right, yes. Yeah, so that's really interesting that, that they do constantly look at those rules and, and try to keep them up to date. And I feel like this this blood rule story is one that, that we'll see come round again. And thank you very much for filling us in there, Becky. It's such an interesting story. We've also got a couple of safety warnings that all riders should be heeding this week. Lucy, we're going to come to you next. You've been looking at beach safety after a recent incident. I have and we write about beach riding sort of fairly often and for riders, I know me personally, riding on the beach does it get much better but there have been on the flip side of that we do, I wouldn't say fairly often but we do write about incidents involving horses and riders and beaches because they can be quite dangerous places and what I really found interesting in in this week's news story we're writing about it because it's sort of timely you know it's the summer holidays and people are starting to think about how lovely it would be to to get out and about again with your horse and going to the beach as part of that and what I found really interesting is this isn't about necessarily for people that have never ridden on the beach before this is a warning for people that are doing the right things that you know even if you are doing the right things that it's still a risky place to be I think one of the the sort of incident that we sparked off was one that stuck in my mind was a pony that sank up to her saddle on Cleethorpe's beach. And again, her rider's mother had done everything right in terms of the correct checks, to check the tide times, where you can ride, you know, comply with the rules and things. But it is, there are still risks. And that was one of the main things that I found quite interesting out of that. Certainly the idea of sort of galloping on the beach with the, uh, the the wind in your hair while obviously wearing a proper safety helmet is <laughs> is the dream, isn't it? Or yeah. riding into the sea. And as you say, sometimes you can do everything right and still be caught out, which is a terrifying thought. But what sort of advice should riders heed? What is Beck's practice if you're planning to go and ride on a beach? So I spoke to Burnham Coast Guard down in Somerset and I spoke to the British Horse Society as well to get some really solid advice about from first of all the you know the general things you should be thinking about and also the specific things riders need to think about and the main thing is first of all tide times uh, is the big number one and as alongside that is checking with councils and which beaches you're allowed to ride on there's also quite strict timings in a lot of places which are actually for the rider's own benefit especially as beaches are getting sort of busier particularly this year with people perhaps not going away abroad for their summer holidays and things so those rules are there for a reason and another thing as well that people were 
really advice to do is if you are planning on going for you know a lovely canter if it's safe to do so is to have a walk along the beach um, on foot or you know slowly on your horse just to make sure there's no soft patches or anything like that which you know you perhaps can't predict but could be there because those can be you know quite dangerous and you might not see them Una Mayer as well from British Horse Society she also gave some quite handy advice about how to how to ride towards the sea and she suggested approaching at an angle rather than head on so if your horse spooks at the breaking waves he's more likely to sort of shy away from the water than go up uh, because horses can behave unpredictably at the beach even you know the the most sensible sensible sane ones uh, it's quite a different environment for them uh, but all that being said you know everyone that I spoke to was very much saying you know be careful and be aware but you know by all means when you can do come and enjoy it because there's nothing quite like it. Mm, it's really interesting that idea that horses might be spooked by the waves. I remember taking a dog to the beach once who loved the water and she would always get in, you know, a shallow stream and she was jumping into the horse's water tubs. But when she got to the beach, she was frightened of the waves and of sort of yeah. that much water. So I guess it could be a, a similar scenario with horses. As you say, it's a really unfamiliar environment. Mm. There's also some technology that's helping Coast Guards to develop the way they work, Lucy, isn't there? Yes, I've been writing about the What Three Words app this week. It's launched a bit of an awareness week really and we first started writing about it I want to say probably this time last year actually they trialed it with a few emergency services and since that time it's it's been rolled out further and further and further and I checked with them this week and Coast Guards are using it and have used it in beach rescues I'm not sure if that's necessarily horse beach rescues but Essentially, the way it works is it divides the whole world up into three metre by three metre squares and gives each of those squares three specific words. So they could be anything. Um, Twigs emptied, unite, you know, three random words. And that will tell the emergency services, if you happen to call 999, if you are in an emergency situation, they can locate exactly where you are. Because, I mean, as riders, we know we go out and we're often quite remote locations and even describing someone who knows the area can be quite hard so to be in the middle of a time when you're really needing some help and to have to think gosh how can I possibly give someone directions to where exactly I am on a beach where I am out hacking it is really really useful for that. Mm, that's really interesting. Actually, my mum used what three words in earnest last week because she was where my parents live. We ride on army land, which is all controlled by permits, and she was riding and she saw a small fire, um, which didn't look like well. She didn't even see a fire. She saw smoke, and she was worried it might be a fire, and she was unsure what to do. But in the end, she sort of rang the helpline for the for the army control desk for the area, and she gave them the what three words location, and they said they would uh, they would come out and, and check it out and make sure that you know that it wasn't a, a sort of fire that was taking hold on the common so real life scenario there that that this could be useful you know on a, on a fire or on a beach so such a good idea isn't it and it's I know some people have said oh well you know that's what grid references are for but that's a heck of a lot of numbers you know when you're thinking about it and realistically having three easy words that generates whether you've got signal or not on an app on your phone is it's more practical really isn't it yeah, no, I think it's a great idea and, and something that's uh, free for riders to download. So a good idea. And whether you're going to the beach or competition, riders are also being warned to make sure their lorries are up to scratch now that they're heading out and about again, aren't they, Eleanor? 
Yeah, um, we have talked to PRP Rescue Services and, and they said it's it's been like they normally see in spring but, quote, with a vengeance. People have been breaking down all over the place. Um, and I think a lot of that, and they think a lot of that, is because obviously everyone's lorries sat there for months during the lockdown. And because in some cases it was quite sudden that competition and, and being able to go out started up again, everyone's just gone, woo, and got in the lorry and gone. And, and things have gone wrong because possibly they haven't been checked beforehand. Do you do all your lorry checks correctly as you should have done before you headed out jumping again? Yeah I was very proud of myself for checking the oil and water um, and uh, I've got my friend who's a mechanic used to do what he called dipstick roulette where he used to just turn up unannounced and check the oil and water and give me a roasting if they weren't done. Um, so I've got into quite a good habit of checking those and I check my floor and ramp because that's another thing uh, John Phillips of PRP said that they haven't had any ramp slash floor failing incidents and they really really don't want any because you know no one wants a horse going through the floor Mm, that's the stuff of nightmares isn't it and is there anything else that's contributing to the extra breakdowns this year well of course the i mean as of i think it's the first of august um mot's will be compulsory again but of course there was the the delay on them the extension on them um and so there may be people whose mot certificates have run out but of course as the, well, i spoke to the dvsa and of course as they pointed out the test is just an annual check you're responsible for your lorry or any vehicle being safe whenever you get in it and if you're found to have a dangerous or illegal defect at any time of the year it doesn't matter if you've got a valid MOT you're still going to get done for it. Interesting to think there about a couple of dangers that riders are are coming across as we exit from lockdown you know we feel like we've come through a a dangerous time but actually as you start to go back out and about there are there are are more dangers out there that that you need to be aware of and and talking of coronavirus too Lucy you've got a couple of competition updates for us on the domestic side there are some frustrations around Wales and the Welsh border at the moment. Yes, and I really felt this week actually for uh, Wales and West in particular, which is meant to have their big show, uh, the Welsh Home Pony on 23rd to the 28th of July, which unfortunately had to be cancelled owing to lockdown restrictions still being very much in place in some form in Wales. Um, James Broom, who's the owner of the David Broom Event Centre, which was meant to be hosting it, he set up a petition because I think there's just a lot of frustration around the fact that it's while it's fantastic that you know pub beer gardens are open again and people can go out and enjoy those it seems a bit strange really that that can happen but you can't on a you know much bigger space have people coming out to enjoy socially distant sports and so basically the petition is asking for outdoor sports venues to have you know the same regulations as beer gardens which is done by sort of venue to venue um, a uh, risk assessment so each place can say how many people they think they can safely have on site and that's already gained sort of more than 5,000 signatures in the last couple of weeks since that's been set up so it'll be interesting to see how how that pans out and I just I do hope for the sake of all the businesses in in Wales that of course, this is bigger than the equestrian industry itself, but in terms of wider sports as well, that, that they can they can get going again safely. Mm. And there are some developments internationally too, with the possibility of the 2021 European Championships. We talked at length about whether they could uh, could run next year alongside the Olympics a couple of weeks ago. And there are some more developments on the possibility of them being uncancelled, which is one of my favourite words for this year. 
<laughs> yes, there are. So the FEI had a board meeting on 21st of July and it's now put that suggestion uh, to each of its sport committees. So, you know, we've got an eventing committee, uh, one for jumping, one for dressage and so on. So again, it's a, it's a bit more of a, another step forward. It's, it's not saying, you know, it's going to go ahead, but equally it's not saying it's not a stopping point for it, if that makes sense. And I spoke to uh, Bruce Haskell of the Event Ride Association this week and Wayne Shannon of the dressage one as well and they are again both very keen for it to go ahead if it possibly can and the International Jumping Riders Club as we were mentioning earlier as well they've been very proactive in in trying to get this back on so back in May they were identifying potential organisers and writing to the FEI and early July as well they've agreed to offer concrete support to organisers and they're worrying that the sport is not offering sort of riders and owners enough reasons to look to the future and having a Europeans back on next year would hopefully be a sort of step in the right direction of addressing that Mm, that's uh, good news and and a story again that we'll be keeping an eye on well thank you everybody very much becky i think your blood rule story is is fascinating and eleanor and lucy lots of useful advice there for riders on the safety side and and we'll be continuing to keep an eye on the competition scene resuming both nationally and internationally goodbye everybody next we have vet ricky farr from farr and percy equine talking about tetanus over to you ricky today is one of those uh, sort of topics that you want to cover with absolutely everyone because people forget about it or it's it's just one of those things that uh, owners almost neglect sadly for the sake of 20 or 30 quid uh, and that is tetanus. So um, when you say tetanus to people they always think okay never seen a case so why do I have to vaccinate against it? Um, But when it actually boils down to it, even in a relatively small practice that we have here, last year we did have two clinical cases of tetanus. Everyone has probably had a tetanus vaccination themselves uh, as a child or an adult. And when you speak to a lot of doctors now, they say it's usually five for life. So five tetanus vaccinations and you're pretty much covered for life. So I quite often have this little discussion with clients when they say, my my horse has had three or four tetanuses easily. It doesn't need another vaccination. Uh, I've had tetanus vaccination and I never get it. But I think the thing that we always need to remember is that... um, Horses live out in fields, uh, they graze off the ground, um, they're forever prone to getting nicks and cuts and little bashes and scrapes. So they're actually more susceptible to getting larger burdens of tetanus or exposure to the, uh, the bacteria that causes tetanus. So uh, just bringing it down, it is essentially a bacteria that lives in the soil. Uh, It's found pretty much everywhere. Uh, You'll obviously have higher concentrations in some places than others. But the the thing is that you need exposure to the toxin, actually, that is produced by the bacteria itself. And the toxin is the thing that causes the problems. So, I mean... Normally, what you would see in a horse that's got tetanus is you'd see muscle stiffness, uh, twitching, um, a very raised tail head. And some people class it as the classical kind of rocking horse kind of stance. So you have extended head and neck and extended tail. And those horses feel really stiff and stilted and really reluctant to move. Um, Some of them stagger around a little bit as well. And... uh, As the condition progresses, uh, those horses get more and more difficulty swallowing. 
And uh, some people probably uh, still know tetanus as something called lock jaw, which is normally as the muscles around the jaw and everything start to actually um, go into spasm. It gets very hard to open the mouth and horses will struggle to eat. Uh, so you'll sometimes see them hypersalivating as well. The, the really disappointing thing is once you start to see those kind of clinical signs of tetanus, um, unfortunately, unless you catch it nice and early and those horses are hospitalized, the vast majority of those horses actually suffocate to death. So the, the muscles of the uh, the breathing muscles are in between the ribs all become paralyzed. And the last thing uh, anyone wants is a horse to die. But unfortunately, these horses will develop those continuing signs and unfortunately yeah, do pass away. So to prevent that, through a single vaccination which in all honesty costs less than two or three cups of coffee frankly it's almost a no-brainer to have that done Um, and having that done on a regular basis as well again the five for life that we kind of see in human medicine doesn't really apply to horses because of exposure so vaccinating them depending on the individual vaccine's manufacturer's requirements but quite often that's every other year so normally you rotate that or combine it with flu or influenza so flu flu and tet flu flu and tet and you will repeat that and everything but again going down to the individual vaccine manufacturers and speaking to your own individual vets about that i think it's also really really good to kind of remember that Unlike having these big, huge wounds that everyone kind of worries about where they impale themselves on fence posts or go through fences or hedges and that tetanus, you don't need much of it. The smallest nick or cut. And quite often we always say to most people, this is the important thing about picking horses feet out. Even that single little nail prick in the bottom of the sole can actually result in getting clinical cases of tetanus. So making sure you're really thorough with your horse. Go over, pick their feet out every day, check their legs over every day. If they are out in the field, make sure that you are actually going over to them and actually seeing them and actually running your hands over them. You know what is normal for your horse. If they do have any nicks or cuts, call your vet. It may amount to nothing, but the key is that at least you should be covered for tetanus. If you speak to your vet, then they can come out if necessary. And if they are suspicious and you're not treated for tetanus, we can give them an antitoxin to cover them for tetanus immediately. And that whilst you're starting your normal vaccine protocol and actually to build that uh, immunity up over a number of years. So the, the two clinical cases of tetanus that we had last year, sadly, one did pass away. Um, we weren't able to get to that fast enough and get the treatment or essentially it's large doses of penicillin really and supportive therapy but we didn't get to that case early enough and it wasn't spotted early enough to help it however luckily one case we did get to nice and early we were called out the the owner was slightly suspicious um very reluctant to eat looking a little bit stilted in the way it walked now again for a 20 30 pound vaccine which is tiny we managed to support this horse palliatively we did send it off to a hospital facility where it was treated now although i can't give out the individual things on that individual case but that horse did come out with a bill of several thousand pounds and that's so when you are looking at a 20 to 30 pound vaccine to prevent something from suffering compared to at least a two three thousand pound bill to get your horse sorted and right and potentially have long-term consequences as a result it's a bit of a no-brainer so just give your vet a buzz, quickly pop down, get them out, have a quick vaccine and get yourself all covered. Thank you, Ricky. Ricky will be back with us next week when we'll be marking the first episode of August by tackling problems associated with working horses on hard ground. 
We'll also be chatting to British show jumper William Whitaker and, of course, rounding up the week's news. Don't forget, if you have any feedback on the Horse and Hound podcast, you can email me on pippa, P-I-P-P-A, dot room, R-O-O-M for mother, E, at futurenet, F-U-T-U-R-E-N-E-T, dot com. Look forward to talking to you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.